Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. In 2014, while still an active cancer patient, Dean Hall decided to inspire other cancer patients by chasing his dream of becoming the first person to swim the entire 187-mile length of the Willamette River, never guessing it would heal his leukemia. And yes, you heard that right, 187 (laughs) miles. All right, Dean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And even before I hit record, I told you how excited I am. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you, Andrea, and thank you for having me. I, but more importantly, thank you on behalf of all of us cancer survivors and cancer patients for doing what you're doing to educate those who are going through the journey and having a tough time. Well, take us back to that time. So I know okay. there are two different cancers involved. So take us back right. to the very beginning. Well, the very beginning is started uh, in Kansas, of all places. I, I'm a native Oregonian. I'm the son of two mountain climbers. Uh, back in the 50s and yeah. 60s, my mother, way before women did this, climbed mountains uh, with my dad and with other men. Uh, she was a real tiger, still is actually. Uh, she's this little 5'2 Swede. Um, and uh, all of us that know her say she's way tougher than we'll ever be. Um, even though she's such a sweetheart. And so I had this very idyllic uh, childhood, you know, while other kids were binge watching Scooby-Doo on Saturdays, I was out climbing uh, the Cascades and getting into the wildest places in the lower 48. It was just absolutely the best childhood a guy like me could ever have. And the thing that made it even better is my parents unlike most couples in the 60s, were crazy about each other. Uh, And so even more than wild adventure, the adventure I really wanted to have in life was to fall in love with somebody and and recreate what I'd gotten to see them having and enjoying. I thought I would grow up and be a sponsored mountain climber or some kind of adventure. That's all I really wanted to do. Uh, But then I fell in love with soccer. Uh, was lucky enough to be a part of the very first Nike-sponsored Olympic development team called the Junior Timbers. I I saw a t-shirt not long ago on an old guy like me, and it says, the older I get, the better I was. (laughs) Um, So that kind of explains my soccer career. Uh, But I had a lot of fun, and they took us to England, and we got to play in Liverpool and Manchester and and all over uh, Great Britain. And so it was, it taught me so much about travel and meeting people from uh, other cultures and uh, just having fun. Well, I fell in love with soccer and so I played it constantly. And I think I got pretty good, had several scholarships all around the US. I don't know why, but I chose this small little college in Kansas just on a lark because I'd had some fun going to church camps. So I thought it would be like a year-round church camp. It wasn't at all. It was pretty much hideous um, <laughs> because I didn't know. No, no, it was. It yeah, wasn't it, good. No, not at all. I didn't know uh, people of faith or Christians could be so mean um, because my parents were very, very spiritual, but they were very loving. And so I thought, all Christians were that way. And it wasn't that way at all. I had never been a part of that world. And so I didn't fit in. And because I didn't have the right haircut or was, I I wasn't carrying the right Bible. I being young and immature reacted very poorly to those kinds of things because I was so shocked. In that time, I met a cute little Kansas farm girl and fell madly in love with her. She said, hey, I'm really close to my family, too. You came here. I didn't go out to Oregon. If you want to marry me, you're going to have to stay here. And so I came out here for about eight. I came back to Portland for about eight months and then decided I would put myself in exile for love. 
And so that's what I did. And if you've ever been to Kansas, uh, especially. Uh, I was born in Kansas. I'm oh, going to interrupt you, really? you for a second. <laughs> so I, was, I better be nice. Yeah, huh? yeah. I don't. Where, where in Kansas? No, no. Wichita. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm an Air Force brat. I totally oh, don't remember. Like, okay. we, I think we lived there six months and my my parents met in the Air Force and we they got transferred Perfect. again. So, huh. yeah. So it's, well, fascinating. But, uh, but I was crazy about her and uh, we had a good life, did what we thought was terribly responsible and built up our careers. Both of us were teachers. And then I realized by the time I'm in my 40s making what I was making, the kids probably wouldn't be nearly as cute. Um, and so I probably better find a way to make some more money. So I became a therapist and started my own private practice in this tiny little town. Everybody told me it was impossible and that was half the lure uh, to trying to build it. And I did. And so by the time I was 47, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, uh, I was living a really, what I thought, a really wonderful life. Uh, I had um, a 14-year-old daughter by then and uh, was very happy, um, had all the material things, plus my private practice was booming. I had about a two-month waiting list. And so things were going very, very wow. well. Um, but I had worked hard all my life and I'm so ADD, I'd never really slept for four hours, five hours was always, I thought, enough for me and really hadn't been taking care of myself the way I probably should have um, because I was busy. Uh, I went in uh, four days before Christmas in 2006 to um, get a blood test for, I was going to have a total knee operation because one of the last years I'd played in my 20s, I'd had just a terrible um, hyperextension of my left knee. They called me up and they said, hey, your blood test came back bad. Well, you got to remember, I'd been a um, teacher in town for 20 years. And so all the young uh, professionals and people in the service industry, I taught and pretty much loved. When they, I'd never been sick in my life either. Um, I mean, you know, a flu occasionally, that sort of thing, but never terribly sick. And so when they told me my blood test came back bad, I thought they meant that one of these ex-students had, had been a technician and fouled the test. And so my immediate response is, oh, that, <laughs> that's okay. Don't get anyone in trouble. I'll just come back in. And, and the nurse said, what? I'm like, hey, it's totally fine make sure nobody's in trouble for this. And she said, what? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's okay. And she said, no, come in and take the test over. And I said, well, yeah, sure. Of course I'm going to. It never occurred to me that it came back bad because something was wrong with me. Um, and so I went in. Okay. That's and, funny. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Funny in a very dorky sort of way. So I went back in, took the test again, I asked who had been the technician and they told me and I said, hey, give them my best because <laughs> I'm still thinking I'm protecting them. One of the head doctors of that clinic had been a best friend for a long time and he would come in about once or twice a month. And I'm also a certified clinical hypnotherapist and meditation teacher. And so he would come in and I would help him de-stress and get him in a nice theta state and have him decompress. Well, he's like, Dean, I got to come in and talk to you. Well, again, I thought I was just helping him. And he showed up at about 9 or 10 p.m. I mean, the town was only 13,000. Everybody knew everybody. And he really cared about me. And he wanted to tell me this devastating news, not only in person, but in private. He was trying to think of what was best for me. Got it. I thought it was really sweethearted. He showed up and he just looked ashen. And I said, Aaron, what's mm -hmm. wrong? And he's like, man, I, I got some terrible news for you. Still didn't occur to me that it was about me. And I said, hey, that's okay. We'll get through it. And he's like, no, it's not about me. It's about you. And I thought, well, what could be bad for, about me? And so we sat down in my office and I'm like, what's going on? And he had been uh, kind of a philanderer. And so I thought he was going to tell me he'd been caught cheating or something. And I was going to have to set some clear boundaries with him. And 
And he told me, uh, Dean, you've got leukemia. And my first thought, I don't know if I was in shock or what, but my first thought is, oh, good, he didn't cheat. <laughs> um, and then it was like, what? <laughs> what? And I said, I said, huh? And he's like, you've got leukemia. And I, I just, it took me about a minute. And finally, he said, say something. I'm like, leukemia? You, you mean cancer? And he said, yeah, it came back in the blood test. I thought, me? How could I? I mean, uh, I was married to a pretty strict Baptist. And so I hadn't had even a drink of alcohol in 30 years. I had always stayed in pretty good shape. And I'd never done drugs. And I'd never really overeaten. You know, I did all the things that a healthy person is supposed to do. And I thought, that's so odd. And I said, well, tell me more. And he said, uh, the reason it's taken a little while to tell you and the reason why we wanted more blood tests is uh, the numbers are climbing. They're skyrocketing. It's got features of both acute and chronic. And uh, we've never seen anything like it. I sent it up to, he was on the board of KU Medicine. So he sent it up to some experts up there and they're like, uh, boy, uh, this guy's in real trouble. Never seen anything like it. He said, uh, they hope that it goes to one or the other because then we can manage it. I said, well, what if it doesn't? And he says, you've probably got four, five, maybe six weeks. He's like, get everything in order. Weeks? Yeah. He said, get everything in order and just pray that it, it moves to one direction or the other. And first thing I thought of is my daughter's 14. And if you know 14-year-old girls, they need their dads. And I thought, you know, I've had a pretty good life. I'm okay, but I can't leave her. And so uh, I was just in shock for about two weeks and devastated. And then I, I thought, start investigating what helps people get better. And I knew that uh, I needed to clean up my diet. I knew I needed to de-stress, uh, kind of clean up my emotional life. I knew I had to um, start sleeping. And so I was going that direction. But then at about the two and a half week mark, it slid, thankfully, if you can say thankfully, into chronic leukemia, which I knew would buy me some time. And that's when I really became dedicated to learning everything I could about natural ways um, to look at cancer as a wake-up call rather than some kind of devastating death sentence. Did you ever, one, get a second opinion, especially given that you were in such a small town? And two, what did the doctor recommend in terms of treatment? At first, they were going to do massive amounts of chemo and radiation, and um, I'd had so many of my clients that had done that, and even if they were successful, uh, they had terrible neuropathy or uh, what they call chemo brain or uh, hardening of the arteries or problems with their organs. I just did not want to go that direction. I told my oncologist and my doctors that I would, but we would have to consider it a last ditch effort, that I wouldn't do it unless we'd exhausted all other possibilities. Yeah, my oncologists, a couple of them fired me, and then the one I ended up with had to be very patient um, because I was always saying, uh, telling him, and this is something I want other cancer patients to hear. I think if I'd want any other cancer patients to know something, it would be, remember, they're not your boss. They're your consultant. Yes. You've got to be the boss of your journey and your body and your future. Once my first oncologist fired me because I wasn't listening to him and doing exactly what he wanted, I wanted to investigate, read, research everything for myself, and, and he didn't like that approach. Every other oncologist I've had since, I said, 
Even Juanario Castro, he was considered the world's expert in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, he's down at University of California, San Diego. Just a beautiful man, just a wonderful person. And even him, I gave him what I called the speech. I said, no, Dr. Castro, you have to know. And if you're not willing to work this way, I understand. But you are not my boss. Uh, you are my consultant. And I am putting you on my team. If you want to be on my team, then we can work together. But if you think you're the manager or the owner of this team, you're wrong. You can be the coach, um, but that's it. And he just laughed and he says, oh, I love that approach. It sounds like you did get a second opinion, more than one opinion. Yes, I did get okay. more than one opinion. And immediately, um, this doctor friend of mine, his name's Aaron. He wanted me to have as many opinions as I wanted, and he's such a good friend. He immediately talked to several that were uh, in Kansas City on the KU Board of Medicine, and they all took a look at it um, before I went to the first oncologist, and, and uh, even he got me some other opinions, and then I went to my second oncologist, uh, who was just a wonderful man from Uganda. Uh, it took me a while to learn how to say his name. It was Anatolia Gundape. And he was just this big, rich, warm person. And he's the one of the only guys that's ever made me cry without expecting it. One time I was doing really, really poorly and my numbers were all going in the wrong direction. And he turned and paused and he said, go and be well, my friend. And I, I'd never had a doctor talk to me like that before. So he's just a, a real help and a real support. So did you ever do what would be considered traditional treatment? And can you kind of give us the timeline here yeah. of things? 2007, uh, immediately they wanted me to do chemo and radiation. I said, no, they said that's foolish, uh, but I was willing to gamble. And thankfully it did. I think if it had gone another week or two, I, I would have pulled the trigger. And then with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, if the numbers get too high, then they'll do chemo radiation to pull them back down. Mine did, but uh, Dr. Agundape said that if I took blood tests more routinely, uh, like every two weeks rather than at once a month, he would be willing to wait and see if some of the natural things that I was doing uh, would at least stabilize or start bringing them down. And so 2007, I was just one sick puppy. I had done a lot of triathlons in the 80s and 90s. And uh, then growing up with mountaineers, early on learned what I call the marathon mindset, where you learn to crawl back way into your brain and just watch your body go, even though you don't think you can. And I found that I was using that muscle just to get out of bed and take 20 steps to the bathroom and then just to get back to bed. Um, and I, I thought, oh, man, if I'm having to use that uh, just to take 20 steps, I'm in trouble. Did you ever use any, quote unquote, traditional treatment? No, I was fortunate. So what enough. was making you so sick? The cancer um, itself just yeah my immune system yeah. was so bad and so decimated mm. uh and my white blood cell count was so high that oxygen was having a hard time going through my body and everything was just wow. not working very well this friend aaron he said well the best way i can describe chronic lymphocytic leukemia when it gets up that high is mono on crack he said, you're just tired and you don't have any energy. Okay. And that's that's kind of what it felt like. I would sleep 20 hours a day sometimes. I knew I was in real trouble, though, because I've, I've always loved movies, but I've never been a big TV watcher. <laughs> My 14-year-old daughter laughed and she said, Dad, um, you might not be doing as well as you think when she caught me binge watching America's Next Top Model. <laughs> <laughs> she's like okay yeah, oh my god that's awesome. i haven't been scared till now <laughs> and i'm like "Ooh, you're probably right yeah, yeah i'm scared yeah. 
you know, what I think is really interesting, the fact that you brought up the marathon mindset, having done a few marathons myself, and I'm a horrible runner, mm. is it seems like to me, it wasn't just the illness, but you also, because you wanted to do it your way, you really resisted this, these sort of traditional treatments. And I'm curious, like, how did your wife feel about that? How did your family feel about it? Yeah, uh, she was scared too. Um, but we were a real team and she was more interested. Um, she'd this little town of 13,000, you know, had been sprayed with DDT so many times in the fifties and sixties. And then we had an oil refinery, the rate of cancer in this tiny little town, I think the water table's toxic. And I think most of the people, especially my generation that had grown up there had been sprayed so many times. When I left this little town in 2012, there were 13 people that had Parkinson's in a town of 13,000. There had been 10 or 12 people had died of brain tumors, including my first wife. And there were about 20 or 30 of us that had some form of blood cancer. So something's going on in that area. And so a lot of us had seen people go through typical traditional recovery process and it hadn't turned out well for them. Tell us about your first wife. This is the woman you fell in love with and stayed mm -hmm. in Kansas mm -hmm. for, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Gosh, tell us about her. Uh, she, all of her friends called her the Energizer Bunny. Um, she had two speeds, extremely fast or asleep and not much in between. Uh, she was a <laughs> kindergarten teacher to boot. I actually saw her one time uh, write a check using a crayon. <laughs> I'm like, can you do that? Um, she was just a oh pretty God. funny, very charming uh, person. She too had never been sick, uh, was always healthy. When that girl died, um, she was so Baptist, she'd never had even a taste of beer, never smoked a cigarette, never taken any kind of drugs, uh, and always stayed very healthy. So for her to die of a brain tumor was really astonishing. But she when, did. when did she get the brain tumor? Was this before or after you? I was diagnosed with cancer um, in December 21st of 2006. Uh, almost died of pneumonia because my immune system was so bad of June of 2007. Came back and by 2008, I was doing pretty well. And the numbers had all gone down to a manageable level. We thought we'd gotten uh, kind of a pass. And 2008 and 2009, um, life had kind of returned to normal, only I felt like I'd learned some really good lessons about self-care. Then August of 2010, uh, she started acting kind of funny. Um, she'd have uh, some memory problems. I'd worked with several families who'd lost people with brain tumors. And usually this is a slow process of years. And within two weeks, the right side of her face fell. And initially, they thought she had something called Meniere's disease. Two days later, she kind of lost her speech and wasn't making much sense. And so we took her in for a brain scan. They found the largest brain tumor the neurosurgeon had seen in 30 years. It was huge. And he said that um, those are operable. Uh, according to how far forward and how high they are. And hers was way back and way deep, wrapped around the brainstem mm. with a lot of ganglia. And so it was inoperable. Uh, he said even if they did laser-guided surgery, there was an 80% chance they'd nick a nerve and she'd be a quadriplege or they'd nick a blood vessel and she'd bleed out on the table. And I asked him, September 2nd of 2010, we're up there in Kansas City with one of the best neurosurgeons in the U.S. And he said, I said, even if things went uh, as good as they possibly could, what would the chances be? And he said, well, it would buy her another six to 10 months of life. And I asked him, what would the quality of life be? And he said, well, imagine having the flu a bad case of the flu and a migraine all the time. And I said, well, that's not very high quality. 
And he said, no, Dean, he's, he's like, I'm sorry, there's really not any good news I have for you. And I said, well, what if we don't do anything? And he said, well, she'll sleep more and she'll lose more and more of her abilities and then she'll die in her sleep. And so I said, okay, that's what we'll do. And 52 days later, she was gone. Fifteen, oh, 15, oh my God. 15 days for our 30th anniversary. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And, and your daughter at this point was, what, 18? Yeah, she was going into her senior year. It was October of her senior year in high school. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. How, how was, it was that for her? Um, shock and denial uh, was her best friend. Uh, the research shows that when you're in that that stage where you're getting ready to leave home, they call it the launching stage of life. It usually takes five to six years to catch up with you. And that's exactly what happened with her. I was astonished and it is a real testament to her strength and her discipline, but her grade average didn't even drop. She, she graduated high school with a 3.57, then went to college, got an even higher grade average than that. But right after she graduated from college, that's when it really, the impact of everything really hit her. It hit me right away. I don't even remember 2011 or 12, really. I really don't. Looking back, you have to remind me uh, of events. Um, and then they're kind of fuzzy uh, until about October of 2013. And by this time, I'm, I'm dying uh, because somewhere in 2011, uh, the leukemia really came back aggressively and this time brought with it non-Hodgkin's small cell lymphoma, which many times those two go together. That was very aggressive as well. And I just didn't care. I just, I just didn't, I didn't, mm. I didn't care. So there was a poignant time. I decided to close my practice because I really didn't have the bandwidth to hear other people's problems. People come in complaining that their husband hadn't said hello to them that day. And I thought, yeah. okay, big it's deal. Perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. And I try to try to be caring, but inside I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what you got for me? So I closed my practice, sold everything off, and moved back to Oregon to be close to my family. And to be in this land, I mean, I'd missed climbing and hiking and uh, jumping into rivers for 30 years and came back and I was doing so poorly by the time I got back here. I really couldn't adventure like I'd hoped to. I Right now I'm at 217, um, which is a pretty fit, um, what I call fighting weight for me. I was 158 pounds. I looked skeletal. I'm six one and a half. I looked skeletal. I, oh my goodness. And I didn't really realize how bad it was getting. The doctors kept telling me it was, it was really bad. Um, my parents were so worried that they sponsored me to go down and meet Dr. Juanario Castro. Because uh, even though CLL isn't genetic, my dad had had it. And he almost died from it in 2002. And his insurance provider just wasn't getting him the help he needed. And he's a pretty wealthy guy. He did really well in business. And so he paid. He researched who the best was and getting the best results. And he found Dr. Castro. And so he paid out of pocket to go see him. By 2013, late 13, early 14, uh, he just begged me to go down and see Dr. Castro because he knew that I didn't care and probably wouldn't do it for myself. And out of respect for him and my mom, I, I said, okay. And so they flew me down and Dr. Castro uh, said, yeah, you're not, not doing good, not doing well at all. By then though, I had found a dream. In August of 2013, I'm in my little duplex and uh, feeling all alone. My daughter's off to college and I'm all by myself. It, it probably okay. would have been better for me if I'd have been in Kansas because I left all my adult friends and kind of my support network. Yeah. So I'm really kind of all alone unless a family member drops in and that would happen 
once a week or so, but all the rest of the time, I'm just by myself feeling miserable, both inside and out. And uh, one day I got up and walked into the bathroom and I had made a habit of never looking at myself, but somehow I, I was shaving and I, I, I saw myself in the mirror and you could see uh, even the bones in my chest, every rib, my pelvis, my lymph nodes had swollen so much I could hardly turn my neck. They were just huge. Wow. And then I had what Dr. Uh, Castro lovingly called my hockey puck under my right arm. I had a lymph node that had swollen to the exact size and shape of a hockey puck. Um, and so I, I couldn't oh hardly goodness. put down my right arm. And I looked up and I caught my, my own gaze. I hadn't looked at myself in the mirror for, gosh, probably years. And what hit me more than anything was how sad the guy in the mirror looked. He just looked done. And, and so I thought for just a very brief moment, I thought, you know what? I've had a good life. I've accomplished everything I wanted. If I just let this thing go, nobody would know that I gave up. And it's probably not a bad way to go. I'm done. And then it hit me immediately how selfish that was. You know, my daughter's 21, just lost her mama. I thought, you know, I don't have the luxury of this kind of uh, thought process. And I had helped many people come back, many clients come back from anxiety, chronic illness, depression. If I could just help them, you know, using Viktor Frankl's work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he was the Austrian psychiatrist that went through Auschwitz. And he found that if you're passionate about a purpose, that is the one thing, the secret to surviving almost anything. And so I knew that I needed to become passionate about some kind of purpose. But what? I didn't want to start a private practice. I knew I couldn't at this point. I'd written a book that had been doing pretty well, but it was on acquaintance rape. And that's such a heavy subject. I knew I didn't have the bandwidth for that. And so I just didn't know what to become passionate about. And so I started praying and meditating, asking every day uh, for a purpose to just come forward. And it was crickets for about two weeks. And one day I just got frustrated and I thought, you know, while I wait for God or the universe to give me this great answer, I might as well just kind of clean up my duplex and, and decorate it because I hadn't even unpacked my boxes and I'd lived there for about six months. And so I'm unpacking a box and I find a journal that I'd been forced to keep in sixth grade. And I thought, well, I wonder what the 11-year-old Dean had to say. And so I opened it on the first page. It said, when I get old, I gotta. Not I've got to or I want to. I gotta. Climb Mount Everest, swim the English Channel. It was like an electric shot went through me. I thought, yeah. It, something happened where all of a sudden I felt alive for the first time in three years. And I thought, well, I know I can't climb Everest because my immune system's so bad. I, I probably couldn't handle the food in Kathmandu. Or I definitely, with the way my blood's working right now, I it, it wouldn't do very well at elevation. And it costs a lot of money because I'd had right. some friends do it. So I thought, okay, scratch that one for now. But I can swim the channel. And I don't know why I thought I could, but I just knew I could. And so I called my doctor and told him, and he's like, Dean, not only no, but hell no. You get in a public pool, it'll kill you. And you're going to have to get in a public pool, you know, to train. And I said, well, doc, what do you want me to do? Die on a couch watching Wheel of Fortune? I'm not going to go out that way. I, if I'm dying, I'm dying. And if I'm dying, I want to die swinging for the fence. And he's like, well, once again, you're on your own. I, I, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you what's, what's the best thing to do. And this isn't the best thing to do. But actually for me, it was. Uh, the first day, that day, I didn't even think about it. I found some goggles and a swimsuit, went down to the public pool. And as soon as I kicked off, it was the first time in three years I felt like myself, you know, because I 
doing triathlons, I'd spent a lot of time in the pool doing laps. And it was just familiar. And feeling the water glide over my body is just like, okay, I'm back. I feel this. Uh, and that lasted for about half a lap until I was exhausted. It was just this beautiful reprieve that I hadn't had in the grief or the trauma. So I went back every day and very quickly, within weeks, all my numbers started going in the right direction. I started to gain muscle mass again, which really felt good. And my lymph nodes, because I don't know if you know much about the lymph system, I hadn't, but they don't work unless you're moving. And the more you move, the more they pump. So swimming got everything moving, which I would always have what I call a swim, a lap swim hangover. Um, I'd swim and about two or three three hours later, you know, the lymph system had pushed out all this poison that it had been holding. And so I'd feel flu-like symptoms for about five hours after, but I was okay with that. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I started in August. And by uh, Christmas, I was feeling really good and my head was starting to clear and I was having brief moments of even what I call happiness. And I was getting out of the pool from doing a like a mile and a half, which I thought was just so studly. I was so proud of myself for doing a mile and a half. Uh, And I I jumped out of the pool and it hit me. Who cares if another middle-aged man puts on a Speedo and swims to France? It does the world no good. And in my case, it won't even be a pretty picture. So what am I doing? Because my whole life, I'd wanted to serve others and make uh, some kind of positive impact. So again, I started praying and meditating and asking, how could I do this and do the world some good? And that's when uh, it hit me. Um, Oregon had done such a good job of cleaning up the Willamette River, which in the 60s and 70s was just a sewer. But now it was some of the riverbanks are still, well, we have one three-mile section that's called a super super fun site. You still don't want to put your feet in the sediment there. But we brought the wildlife back and we cleaned up and did a bunch of environmental things. And, and the river is just this beautiful river. It runs all the way through. Like you can't get through Portland without crossing this river multiple times. So it's, you can, it is you definitely kind of. Yeah. You can't be in Oregon. It's like the lifeblood. Right. It's the, yeah. it's the state's longest river. It goes south to north. It uh, goes through our state capital, and then it feeds the Willamette Valley. All the vineyards are on the banks of the Willamette River or fed by the Willamette River. And then it goes through Portland, and then it dumps into one of the most mighty rivers in America, the Columbia. And so, yeah, you can't really be an Oregonian without having a relationship with what I call Mama River. I was born only four blocks from the Willamette. So I've always loved this river and it hit me. I wonder if anyone's ever swum this thing, this entire thing. And of course they hadn't because it's 187 miles long. And especially the first 50 miles are a little treacherous because it's faster moving and there are huge Douglas firs that fall into it. And so there are log jams and, and what's called strainers underwater branches that you could catch and get stuck in. And what I didn't know is if the current's even just a mile an hour and you get pressed up against a log jam, it creates 2,000 pounds of pressure. You're not getting off of that. So one mistake and you're kind of a goner. And so that kind of scares people. There is a bit of a risk, but what you do is you get a kayaker in front of you and they're constantly talking to you and you just, they're picking out the line and seeing what you can't see because you're so close to the water and finding the right line for you. And so that's what I did. And to make the story even more miraculous and beautiful, my 79-year-old father, um, I was was having trouble. I I got a set of six kayakers that we were going to kind of relay, and uh, four of them dropped out. And he came to me and he's like, uh, uh, what if, what if I just be your kayaker? And I'm like, dad, you're 79. And he's like, yeah, so 
dad, you've never kayaked. <laughs> and he's like, uh, I've done a lot of canoe and I'll figure it out. And so, so uh, one of the beautiful parts of the story is uh, it took me 22 days to swim the Willamette. I averaged 10 to 12 miles a day in 40 degree water. Wow. And I got to spend Oof. almost a little more than three weeks day in, day out with my dad. It That's dramatically amazing. changed us. I mean, congratulations oh, on thanks. doing that. And you did say when I read your bio that hmm. this healed you. So yes. after you did this swim over three weeks, mm -hmm. what happened? Um, and then I need to jump into some of the last sure, questions. Sure. Well, I had never heard of Wim Hof or uh, the benefits of cold water immersion. Um, I had okay. never heard of Wallace J. Nichols and the theory of the blue mind. When you're in, on, around, or by water, your brain goes uh, within two minutes to a meditative and tranquil state. They're now using water uh, and water activities like surfing and kayaking for PTSD in the veterans as kind of one of the staple go-to wow. best That's and cool. most effective. I didn't know anything about that. When I entered the river in 2000, or, uh, 2014, June 3rd, I couldn't say Mary, my first wife's name, uh, without crying. When I got out, I was, we were at kind of the celebration dinner, and I was laughing and telling a funny story about And everybody acted shot. And I, I said, what? And they said, you haven't been able to say her name for four years. It eased the trauma. And then the hardest thing, uh, swimming in 40 degree water is I'd go into pretty deep hypothermia within about 45 minutes or so. Uh, cause 40 sounds warm, but when you're in it, it's pretty ice cold and doing that for 40 minutes. So I'd have to get out onto a riverbank and run in place or two jumping jacks and then get back in and do it again. That was the biggest challenge is just handling the hypothermia. Little did I know it was boosting my immune system and my metabolism. And I noticed every day, even though I was tired, I was feeling better and better. I just thought it was because I was having a good time with my dad and then raising money <laughs> for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. I looked because I thought I went and took a blood test immediately, but it wasn't until that next January that I went down and saw Dr. Castro again. And he came in with a big grin on his face and I thought, what, what's going on? And he threw down the file and he said, Dean, if I hadn't diagnosed you myself, I would have thought you'd been misdiagnosed. He said, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, according to modern medicine, is never supposed to go away. And I can't find it. It's not there. I could not make a good case that you have it. And so being in that cold water threw me into uh, something called radical remission. Yeah, it's, not, it's just not there. Wow. And that includes the lymphoma too. It's gone. No. The lymphoma got aggressive and they wanted me to do chemo and radiation on it. But once again, I'd read uh, quite a bit about um, forest bathing. The Japanese found that phytoncides um, come out, this, this essential oil comes out in the air from fir and pine forests, and it boosts your immune system. And having Mama River heal me, I thought, let's take three to six months and find out if I go out in the forest, deep in the forest, way off a path, and just with nothing more than my backpacking hammock, and spend all night, every Thursday night, and then all day Friday, uh, if that would boost my immune system and help the lymphoma. And I started that May of 2015. By March of 2016, the lymphoma was gone. Thankfully, Mother Earth has healed me uh, in ways beyond what I can describe. And I never had to do chemo or radiation. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey, Dean? Hmm. Uh, you only get one. <laughs> okay. I believe there are two forms of cancer. One, like my wife had, where you just accidentally step into some toxic stew and get poisoned and die. But even then, many people can heal. 
And then there's one like I had where you're just not good at managing your emotions or your stress and it comes as a lesson. And if you listen to that lesson, you heal. And if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be <laughs> and why? I would encourage um, doctors to allow patients to be more the team leader. And I wish types of non-traditional holistic medicine was promoted more and even researched more so that we knew more about that. So more wow. people could have the same kind of experience communing with nature and letting nature heal them and not wackadoo hippy dippy stuff. Uh, stuff that has actual research behind it. I wish that was promoted more and not just going straight to drugs. I love that so much. Yeah, and I, I could go down a rabbit hole, but we're running out of time, <laughs> but as I won't. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid sure. fire questions? Right. Beach, desert, or mountains? Yeah, I'm from Oregon. I say all of them. I know that's not fair, <laughs> but we we have all of them. I guess really I know I, you do. I even though I'm a water guy, I'd have to say mountains because that's my heritage. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones. Yeah, I've thought about this one a lot. I love each one of them. Did you <laughs> I love each one of them so much. Those are my three favorite groups, but I'd have to say stones. And that's probably the least likely because they're the least uh, celebrated out of the three. But it's because they just didn't care and um, represented themselves entirely. I think the other two groups are better musicians. But when I listen to the Stones, I feel more. You know, it's funny. When I ask these questions, sometimes like an answer pops into my head immediately for the person. Yeah. yeah. Um, not always, but it just right. depends. I knew it was going to be the Stones. Really? Why? I knew it. Yes. How so? I don't know why. Hmm. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's I, the I bad get, boy I get in me. premonitions and stuff all the time. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I just knew there was something about it. I don't know. Um, what is one word that best describes you? Miracles. Okay. And I don't I know like if that. It, I didn't yeah, that. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm going to stick with that. Just know that it's not an ego thing. It's not only what I've experienced, but what I believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Before you die, what's the last song you want to hear? Mm. I've thought about this one a lot, too. Um, gosh, I just forgot the name. Um, but the one Louis Armstrong, It's a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Isn't that the name of it? It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite so. song. Yeah. 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 What's the last meal you want to eat? don't care about the food just would like it to be with the people I love. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect segue into who's the last person you want to see. Anybody that's family. I, I couldn't just pick one. Of course I'd want my daughter to be there. Yeah. And the last words you will speak. Mm, I love you. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? I've got two. Is that fair? <laughs> I, yeah, one, that's, yeah. Okay. And please tell, um, tell us how people can get in contact with you. Sure. As well. The biggest resource that is the most undiscovered, unused, unnoticed is Mother Nature. Um, I think we, mo the reason we're all so anxious, depressed, and addicted and sick is because we live in concrete jungles and do nothing but stare at silly screens. We are not in our natural habitat. And when you take animals out of their natural habitat, they get sick and die. And I think that's a big part of why we all are feeling um, sick and anxious and depressed and addicted. And so find a way to commune with nature. I'm developing a retreat and even writing a book on using the four elements for uh, your own good and your own healing, uh, earth, water, fire, wind. 
and exploring those. And when I tell people that, they kind of scratch their head, which kind of makes me sad because water healed my leukemia and earth healed my lymphoma. And uh, the other two elements uh, have all sorts of healing properties as well, if nothing else, just wonderful stress-reducing properties. They balance your life. Uh, the other one that I've become a huge fan of is Kelly A. Turner's work, uh, Radical Remission. Oh, she yeah. wrote a book, Radical Remission. And anytime anyone yeah. gets cancer, if they reach out to me, one of the first things I ask them to do is read Radical Remission because she's found that yeah. those of us that experience a spontaneous remission have nine things in common. And when I first saw those yeah. nine things, it brought me and uh, my wife to tears because intuitively I'd done all nine. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's just a really yeah, important sounds... thing she's doing. I haven't read the second book, Radical Hope, mm -hmm. but I love mm -hmm. Radical Remission. Mm -hmm. I always recommend it as well. And I I wish that had existed when my sister was diagnosed. Oh, I, I bet. really yeah. great stuff. Dean, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your miraculous story because it truly <laughs> is and yeah. just for letting us into your world and your life yeah well it's sure been fun andrea and again thank you thank you thank you for all you're doing uh you know you said you wished you'd have had kelly i wish you'd have been around when i was going through this because there just wasn't much and no one was really talking about it like you are so thank you for all that you're doing Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.